Section 18 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mark Jacoby. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Livy. Translated by William Mafson Roberts. Book 3, Chapters 32 to 41. Chapter 32 Pestilence in Rome The Decembers As regards to foreign war, the year was a quiet one. The following one, in which Publius Curiatius and Sextus Quintilius were consuls, was still quieter, owing to the continued silence of the tribunes. This was due to two causes. First, they were waiting the return of the commissioners who had gone to Athens, and the foreign laws which they were to bring. And secondly, two fearful disasters came together, a famine and a pestilence which was fatal to men and fatal to cattle. The fields lay waste. The city was depleted by an unbroken series of deaths. Many illustrious houses were in mourning. The flamen Quirinalius Servius Cornelius died. Also the augur Gaius Horatius Pulvius in whose place the augurs chose Gaius Veturius all the more eagerly, because he had been condemned by the plebes. The consul, Quincatilius, and four tribunes of the plebes died. The year was a gloomy one, owing to the numerous losses. There was a respite from external enemies. The succeeding consuls were Gaius Menenius and Publius Setius Capitolinus. The year was also free from war abroad, but commotions began at home. The commissioners now had returned with the laws of Athens. The tribunes, in consequence, were more insistent that commencement should at last be made in the contemplation of the laws. It was decided that a body of ten, hence called the Decemvers, should be created, from whom there should be no appeal, and that all other magistrates should be suspended for the year. There was a long controversy as to whether plebeians should be admitted at last they gave way to the patricians, on condition that the Acilian law concerning the Aventine and other sacred laws should not be repealed. Chapter 33 For the second time, in the 301st year from the foundation of Rome, was the form of government changed. The supreme authority was transferred from consuls to decemvirs, just as it had previously passed from kings to consuls. The change was less noteworthy, owing to its short duration, for the happy beginnings of that government developed into too luxuriant a growth. Hence, its early failure and return to the old practice of entrusting two men the name of authority and consul. The Decembers were Appius Claudius, Titus Genusius, Publius Setius, Lucius Veturius, Gaius Julius, Aulus Manlius, Publius Sulpicius, Publius Curiatius, Titus Romilius, and Spirius Postumius. As Claudius and Genusius were the consuls designate, they received the honor in place of the honor of which they were deprived. Cestius, one of the consuls the year before, was honored because he had, against his colleague, brought that subject before the Senate. Next to them were placed the three commissioners who had gone to Athens, as a reward for their undertaking so distant an ambassage. 
and also because it was thought that those who were familiar with the laws of foreign states would be useful in the compilation of new ones. It is said that in the final voting for the four required to complete the number, the electors chose aged men to prevent any violent opposition to the decisions of others. The presidency of the whole body was, in accordance with the wishes of the plebes, entrusted to Appius. He had assumed such a new character that from being a stern and bitter enemy of the people, he suddenly appeared as their advocate and trimmed his sails to catch every breath of popular favor. They administered justice each in turn. The one who was presiding judge for the day was attended by the twelve lictors. The others only had a single usher each. Notwithstanding, the singular harmony which prevailed amongst them, a harmony which under other circumstances might be dangerous to individuals, the most perfect equity was shown to others. It will be sufficient to adduce a single instance as proof of the moderation with which they acted. A dead body had been discovered and dug up in the house of Cestius, a member of a patrician family. It was brought into the assembly. As it was clear that an atrocious crime had been committed, Gaius Julius, a December, indicted Cestius and appeared before the people to prosecute in person. Though he had the right to act as sole judge for the case, he waived his right in order that the liberties of the people might gain what he surrendered of his power. Chapter 34 Whilst highest and lowest alike were enjoying their prompt and impartial administration of justice, as though delivered by an oracle, they were at the same time devoting their attention to the framing of the laws. These eagerly looked for laws were at length inscribed on ten tables, which were exhibited in an assembly specially convened for the purpose. After a prayer that their work might bring welfare and happiness to the state, to them and to their children, the Decembers bade them go and read the laws which were exhibited. As far as the wisdom and foresight of ten men admitted, they had established equal laws for all, for highest and lowest alike. There was, however, more weight in the intelligence and advice of many men. They should turn over each separate item in their minds, discuss them in conversations with each other, and bring forward for public debate what appeared to them superfluous or defective in each enactment. The future laws for Rome should be such as would appear to have been no less unanimously proposed by the people themselves than ratified by them on the proposal of others. When it appeared that they had been sufficiently amended in accordance with the expression of public opinion on each head, the laws of the Ten Tables were passed by the Assembly of Centuries. Even in the mass of legislation today, where laws are piled one upon another in a confused heap, they still form the source of all public and private jurisprudence. After their ratification, the remark was generally made that two tables were still wanting. If they were added, the body, as it might be called, of Roman law would be complete. As the day for elections approached, this impression created a desire to appoint Decembers for a second year. The plebeians had learnt to detest the name of consul as much as that of king, and now, as the Decembers allowed an appeal from one of their body to another, they no longer required the aid of their tribunes. Chapter 35 But after notice had been given, that the election of Decembers would be held on the third market day. Such eagerness to be amongst those elected displayed itself, that even the foremost men of the state 
began an individual canvass as humble suitors for an office, which they had previously, with all their might, opposed, seeking it at the hands of that very plebes with which they had hitherto been in conflict. I think they feared that if they did not fill posts of such great authority, they would be open to men who were not worthy of them. Appius Claudius was keenly alive to the chance that he might not be re-elected, in spite of his age and the honors he had enjoyed. You could hardly tell whether to consider him as a December or a candidate. Sometimes he was more like one who sought office than one who actually held it. He abused the nobility and extolled all the candidates who had neither birth nor personal weight to recommend them. He used to bustle about the forum, surrounded by ex-tribunes of the Dulius and Silius stamp, and through them made overtures to the plebeians, until even his colleagues, who till then had been wholly devoted to him, began to watch him, wondering what he meant. They were convinced. There was no sincerity about it. It was certain that so haughty a man would not exhibit such affability for nothing. They regarded this demeaning of himself and hobnobbing with private individuals as the action of a man who was not so keen to resign office as to discover some way of prolonging it. Not venturing to thwart his aims openly, they tried to moderate his violence by humoring him. As he was the youngest member of their body, they unanimously conferred on him the office of presiding over the elections. By this artifice, they hoped to prevent him from getting himself elected, a thing which no one except the tribunes of the plebes had ever done, setting thereby the worst of precedents. However, he gave out that, if all went well, he should hold the elections, and he seized upon what should have been an impediment as a good opportunity for effecting his purpose. By forming a coalition, he secured the rejection of the two quintai, Capitolinus and Cincinnatus, his own uncle, Gaius Claudius, one of the firmest supporters of the nobility, and other citizens of the same rank. He procured an election of men who were very far from being their equals, either socially or politically, himself among the first, a step which respectable men disproved of, all the more because no one had supposed that he would have the audacity to take it. With him were elected Marcus Cornelius Maluginensis, Marcus Sergius, Lucius Minucius, Quintus Fabius Vibulanus, Quintus Poetilius, Titus Antonius Merenda, Caso Duilius, Spurius Opius Cornison, and Manlius Rebulius. Chapter 36 The Second Doomvirate this was the end of Appius' assumption of a part foreign to his nature. From that time, his conduct was in accordance with his natural disposition, and he began to mold his new colleagues, even before they entered on office, into lines of his own character. They held private meetings daily. Then, armed with plans hatched in absolute secrecy for exercising unbridled power, they no longer troubled to dissemble their tyranny but made themselves difficult of access, harsh and stern to those to whom they granted interviews. So matters went on till the middle of May. At that period, May 15, was the proper time for magistrates to take up their office. At the outset, the first day of their government was marked by a demonstration which aroused great fears. 
For, whereas the previous Decembers had observed the rule of only one having the fasces at a time, and making this emblem of royalty go to each in turn, now all the ten suddenly appeared, each with his twelve lictors. The forum was filled with one hundred and twenty lictors, and they bore the axes tied up in the fasces. The Decembers explained it by saying that, as they were invested with absolute power of life and death, there was no reason for the axes being removed. They presented the appearance of ten kings, and manifold fears were entertained not only by the lowest classes, but even by the foremost of senators. They felt that a pretext for commencing bloodshed was being sought for, so that if anyone uttered, either in the Senate or amongst the people, a single word which reminded them of liberty, the rods and axes would instantly be made ready for him to intimidate the rest. For not only was there no protection in the people now that the right of appeal to them was withdrawn, but the Decembers had mutually agreed not to interfere with each other's sentences, whereas the previous Decembers had allowed their judicial decisions to be revised on appeal to a colleague, and certain matters which they considered to be within the jurisdiction of the people they had referred to them. For some time, they inspired equal terror in all. Gradually, it rested wholly on the plebes. The patricians were unmolested. It was the men in humble life for whom they reserved their wanton and cruel treatment. They were solely swayed by personal motives, not by the justice of a cause, since influence had with them the force of equity. They drew up their judgments at home and pronounced them in the forum. If anyone appealed to a colleague, he left the presence of the one to whom he had appealed bitterly regretting that he had not abided by the first sentence. A belief, not traceable to any authoritative source, had got abroad that their conspiracy against law and justice was not for the present only. A secret and sworn agreement existed amongst them, not to hold any elections, but to keep their power. Now they had once obtained it, by making the decemvirate perpetual. Chapter 37 The plebeians now began to study the faces of the patricians, to catch haply some gleam of liberty from the men from whom they had dreaded slavery and thought that dread had brought the commonwealth into its present condition. The leaders of the Senate hated the Decembers and hated the plebes. They did not approve of what was going on, but they thought that the plebeians deserved all that they got and refused to help men who by rushing too eagerly after liberty had fallen into slavery. They even increased the wrongs they suffered, that through their disgust and impatience at the present conditions, they might begin to long for the former state of things and the two consuls as of old. The greater part of the year had now elapsed. Two tables had been added to the ten of the previous year. If these additional laws were passed by the Comita Centuriata, there was no reason why the decemvirate should be any longer considered necessary. Men were wondering how soon notice would be given of the election of consuls. The sole anxiety of the plebeians was as to the method by which they could re-establish that bulwark of their liberties, the power of the tribunes, which was now suspended. Meantime, nothing was said about any elections. 
At first, the Decembers had bid for popularity by appearing before the plebs, surrounded by ex-tribunes. But now, they were accompanied by an escort of young patricians who crowded round the tribunals, maltreated the plebeians, and plundered their property, and, being the stronger, succeeded in getting whatever they had taken a fancy to. They did not stop short of personal violence. Some were scourged, others beheaded, and that this brutality might not be gratuitous, the punishment of the owner was followed by a grant of his effects. Corrupted by such bribes, the young nobility not only declined to oppose the lawlessness of the Decembers, but they openly showed that they preferred their own freedoms from all restraints to the general liberty. Chapter 38 The 15th of May arrived. The December's term of office expired, but no new magistrates were appointed. Though now only private citizens, the December's came forward as determined as ever to enforce their authority and retain all the emblems of power. It was now in truth undisguised monarchy. Liberty was looked upon as forever lost. None stood forth to vindicate it, nor did it seem likely that anyone would do so. Not only had the people sunk into despondency themselves, but they were beginning to be despised by their neighbors, who scorned the idea of sovereign power existing where there was no liberty. The Sabines made an incursion into Roman territory in great force, and carrying their ravages far and wide, drove away an immense quantity of men and cattle to Aretum, where they collected their scattered forces and encamped in hope that the distracted state of Rome would prevent an army from being raised. Not only the messengers who brought the information, but the country people who were flying into the city created a panic. The Decembers, hated alike by the Senate and the plebes, were left without any support. And whilst they were consulting as to the necessary measures, fortune added a fresh cause of alarm. The Equi, advancing in a different direction, had entrenched themselves on Algidus, and from there were making predatory incursions into the territory of Tusculum. The news was brought by envoys from Tusculum who implored assistance. The panic created unnerved the Decembers, and seeing the city encompassed by two separate wars, they were driven to consult the Senate. They gave orders for the senators to be summoned, quite realizing what a storm of indignant resentment was awaiting them, and that they would be held solely responsible for the wasted territory and the threatening dangers. This, they expected, would lead to an attempt to deprive them of office, unless they offered a unanimous resistance, and by a sharp exercise of authority on a few of the most daring spirits repressed the attempts of others. When the voice of the crier was heard in the forum, calling the patricians to take the Senate House to meet the Decembers, the novelty of it, after so long a suspension of the meetings of the Senate, filled the plebeians with astonishment. What? they asked. Has happened to revive a practice so long disused? We ought to be grateful to the enemy who are menacing us with war for causing anything to happen, which belongs to the usage of a free state. They looked in every part of the forum for a senator, but seldom was one recognized. Then they contemplated the Senate House and the solitude round the Decembers. The latter 
put it down to the universal hatred felt for their authority. The plebeians explained it by saying that the senators did not meet them because private citizens had not the right to summon them. If the plebes made common cause with the senate, those who were bent on recovering their liberty would have men to lead them. And, as the senators, when summoned, would not assemble, so the plebes must refuse to be enrolled for service. Thus, the plebeians expressed their opinions. As to the senators, there was hardly a single member of the order in the forum, and very few in the city. Disgusted with the state of matters, they had retired to their country homes and were attending to their own affairs. Having lost all interest in those of the state, they felt that the more they kept away from any meeting and intercourse with their tyrannical masters, the safer it would be for them. As, on being summoned, they did not come, the ushers were dispatched to their houses to exact the penalties for non-attendance and to ascertain whether they absented themselves of a set purpose. They took back word that the Senate was in the country. This was less unpleasant for the Decembers than if they had been in the city and had refused to recognize their authority. Orders were issued for all to be summoned for the following day. They assembled in greater numbers than they themselves expected. This led the plebeians to think that their liberty had been betrayed by the Senate, since they had obeyed men whose term of office had expired, and who, apart from the force at their disposal, were only private citizens, thus recognizing their right to convene the Senate. Chapter 39 This obedience, however, was shown more by their coming to the Senate House than by any servility in the sentiments which we understand that they expressed. It is recorded that after the question of the war had been introduced by Appius Claudius, and before the formal discussion began, Lucius Valerius Potitus created a scene by demanding that he should be allowed to speak on the political question, and on the Decembers forbidding him in threatening tones to do so, he declared that he would present himself before the people. Marcus Horatius Barbatus showed himself an equally determined opponent, called the Decembers Ten Tarquins, and reminded them that it was under the leadership of the Valeri and the Horati that monarchy had been expelled from Rome. It was not the name of king that men had now grown wary of, for it was the proper title of Jupiter. Romulus, the founder of the city, and his successors were called kings, and the name was still retained for religious purposes. It was the tyranny and violence of kings that men detested. If these were insupportable in a king or a king's son, who would endure them in ten private citizens? They should see to it that they did not, by forbidding freedom of speech in the house, compel them to speak outside its walls. He could not see how it was less permissible for him, as a private citizen, to convene an assembly of the people than for them to summon the Senate. They might find out whenever they chose how much more powerful a sense of wrong is to vindicate liberty than greedy ambition is to support tyranny. They were bringing up the question of the Sabine War, as if the Roman people had any more serious war to wage than one against men who, appointed to draw up laws, left no vestige of law or justice in the state, who had abolished the elections, the annual magistrates, the regular secession of rulers, which formed the sole guarantee of equal liberty for all, who, through simple citizens, still retained the fasces and the power of despotic monarchs. After the expulsion of the kings, 
the magistrates were patricians. After the secession of the plebes, plebeian magistrates were appointed. What party did these men belong to, he asked? The popular party? Why, what have they ever done in conjunction with the people? The nobility? What? These men, who have not held a meeting of the Senate for nearly a year, and now that they are holding one, forbid any speaking on the political situation? Do not place too much reliance on the fears of others. The ills that men are actually suffering from seem to them much more grievous than any they may fear in the future. Chapter 40 Whilst Horatius was delivering this impassioned speech, and the Decembers were in doubt how far they ought to go, whether in the direction of angry resistance or in that of concession, and unable to see what the issue would be, Gaius Claudius, the uncle of the December Appius, made a speech more in the nature of entreaty than of censure. He implored him, by the shade of his father, to think rather of the social order under which he had been born than of the nefarious compact made with his colleagues. It was much more, he said, for the sake of Appius than of the state that he made the appeal, for the state would assert its rights in spite of them if it could not do so with their consent. But great controversies generally kindle great and bitter passions, and it was what these might lead to that he dreaded. Though the Decembers forbade the discussion of any subject save the one they had introduced, their respect for Claudius prevented them from interrupting him. So he concluded with a resolution that no decree should be passed by the Senate. This was universally taken to mean that Claudius adjudged them to be private citizens, and many of the consulars expressed their concurrence. Another proposal, apparently more drastic, but in reality less effective, was that the Senate should order the patricians to hold a special meeting to appoint an interrex. For, by voting for this, they decided that those who were presiding over the Senate were lawful magistrates, whoever they were, whereas the proposal that no decree should be passed made by them private citizens. The cause of the Decembers was on the point of collapsing when Lucius Cornelius Malugenensis, the brother of Marcus Cornelius, the December, who had been purportedly selected from among the consulars to wind up the debate, undertook to defend his brother and his brother's colleagues by professing great anxiety about the war. He was wondering, he said, by what fatality it had come about that the December should be attacked by those who had sought the office, or by their allies, or, in particular, by these men. Or why, during all the months that the commonwealth was undisturbed, no one questioned whether those at the head of affairs were lawful magistrates or not. Whereas now, when the enemy was almost at their gates, they were fomenting civic discord, unless indeed they supposed that the nature of their proceeding would be less apparent in the general confusion. No one was justified in importing prejudice into a matter of such moment, whilst they were preoccupied with much more serious anxieties. He gave it, as his opinion, that the point raised by Valerius and Horatius, namely, that the Decembers had ceased to hold office by May 15, should be submitted to the Senate for decision after the impending wars had been brought to a close and the tranquility of the state restored. And further, 
that Appius Claudius must at once understand that he must be prepared to make a proper return of the election, which he held for the appointment of the Decemvirs, stating whether they were elected only for a year or until such time as the laws which were still required should be passed. In his opinion, every matter but the war should for the present be laid aside. If they thought that the reports of it which had got abroad were false, and that not only the messengers which had come in, but even the Tuscan envoys which had invented the story, then they ought to send out reconnoitering parties to bring back accurate information. If, however, they believed the messengers and the envoys, a levy ought to be made at the earliest possible moment. The Decemvers should lead the armies in whatever direction each thought best, and nothing else should take precedence. Chapter 41 Whilst a division was being taken and the younger senators were carrying this proposition, Valerius and Horatius rose again in great excitement and loudly demanded leave to discuss the political situation. If, they said, the faction in the Senate prevented them, they would bring it before the people, for private citizens had no power to silence them, either in the Senate House or in the Assembly, and they were not going to give way before the fosses of a mock authority. Appius felt that unless he met their violence with equal audacity, his authority was practically at an end. It will be better, he said, not to speak on any subject, but the one we are now considering. And as Valerius insisted that he should not keep silent for a private citizen, Appius ordered a lictor to go with him. Valerius ran to the doors of the Senate House and invoked the protection of the Chiarites. Lucius Cornelius put an end to the scene by throwing his arms round Appius as though to protect Valerius, but really to protect Appius from further mischief. He obtained permission for Valerius to say what he wanted, and as this liberty did not go beyond words, the Decemvers achieved their purpose. The consulars and senior senators felt that the tribunician authority, which they still regarded with detestation, was much more eagerly desired by the plebes than the restoration of the consular authority, and they would almost rather have the Decemvers voluntarily resigning office at a subsequent period than that the plebes should recover power through their unpopularity. If matters could be quietly arranged and the consuls restored without any popular disturbance, they thought that either the preoccupation of war or the moderate exercise of power on the part of the consuls would make the plebes forget all about their tribunes. The levy was proclaimed without any protest from the Senate. The men of age for active service answered to their names, as there was no appeal from the authority of the Decemvers. When the legions were enrolled, the Decemvers arranged among themselves their respective commands. The prominent men amongst them were Quintus Fabius and Appius Claudius. The war at home threatened to be more serious than the one abroad and the violent disposition of Appius was deemed more fitted to repress commotions in the city, whilst Fabius was looked upon as more inclined to evil practices than to be any permanent good to them. This man, at one time so distinguished both at home and in the field, had been so changed by office and the influence of his colleagues that he preferred to take Appius as his model rather than be true to himself. He was entrusted with the Sabine War, 
and Manlius Rebulius and Quintus Poetilius were associated with him in its conduct. Marcus Cornelius was sent to Algidus, together with Lucius Minucius, Titus Antonius, Caeso Dulius, and Marcus Sergius. It was decreed that Spurius Opius should assist Appius Claudius in the defense of the city, with an authority coordinate with that of the other Decembers. End of section 18.